Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Atrial fibrillation recurrence in patients with transient new onset atrial fibrillation detected during hospitalization for non-cardiac surgery or medical illness. Background Atrial fibrillation, AF, is often detected for the first time in patients who are hospitalized for another reason. Long-term risks for AF recurrence in these patients are unclear. Objective To estimate risk for AF recurrence in patients with new-onset AF during a hospitalization for non-cardiac surgery or medical illness compared with a matched population without AF. Design Match Cohort Study Clinicaltrials.gov NCT 0322177 Setting 3 Academic Hospitals in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada Participants The study enrolled patients hospitalized for non-cardiac surgery or medical illness who had transient new-onset AF. For each participant, an age and sex matched control participant with no history of AF from the same hospital ward was recruited. All participants left the hospital in sinus rhythm. Measurements 14-day electrocardiographic, ECG, monitor at 1 and 6 months and telephone assessment at 1, 6 and 12 months. The primary outcome was AF lasting at least 30 seconds on the monitor or captured by ECG-12 lead during routine care at 12 months. Results Among 139 participants with transient new-onset AF, 70 patients with medical illness and 69 surgical patients, and 139 matched control participants, the mean age was 71 years, SD-10, the mean SHA-2-DS2-VOSC score was 3.0, SD-10. 1.5 and 59% were male. The median duration of AF during the index hospitalization was 15.8 hours, IQR, 6.4 to 49.6 hours. After one year, recurrent AF was detected in 33.1%, 95% C, 25.3% to 40.9% of participants in the transient new onset AF group and 5.0%, C, 1.4% to 8.7%, of matched control participants, after adjustment for the number of ECG monitors worn and for baseline clinical differences, the adjusted relative risk was 6.6, c, 3.2 to 13.7. After exclusion of participants who had electrical or pharmacologic cardioversion during the index hospitalization, n equals 40, and their matched control participants and limiting to AF events detected by the patch ECG monitor recurrent AF was detected in 32.3%, C, 23.1% to 41.5% of participants with transient new onset AF and 3.0%, C, 0% to 6.4% of matched control participants. Limitations Generalizability is limited, and the study was underpowered to evaluate subgroups and clinical predictors.
Conclusion Among patients who have transient new-onset AF during a hospitalization for non-cardiac surgery or medical illness, approximately 1 in 3 will have recurrent AF within 1 year. Next article from Lancet. Immune response after pig-to-human kidney xenotransplantation, a multimodal phenotyping study. Background. Cross-species immunological incompatibilities have hampered pig-to-human xenotransplantation, but porcine genome engineering recently enabled the first successful experiments. However, little is known about the immune response after the transplantation of pig kidneys to human recipients. We aim to precisely characterize the early immune responses to the xenotransplantation using a multimodal deep phenotyping approach. Methods We did a complete phenotyping of two pig kidney xenografts transplanted to decedent humans. We used a multimodal strategy combining morphological evaluation, immunophenotyping, IM, IG, C4D, CD68, CD15, NKP46, CD3, CD20, and von Willebrand factor, gene expression profiling, and whole transcriptome digital spatial profiling in cell deconvolution. Xenografts before implantation, wild-type pig kidney autografts, as well as wild-type, non-transplanted pig kidneys with and without ischemia reperfusion were used as controls. Findings The data collected from xenografts suggested early signs of antibody-mediated rejection, characterized by microvascular inflammation with immune deposits, endothelial cell activation, and positive xenoreactive cross-matches. Capillary inflammation was mainly composed of intravascular CD68+, and CD15+, innate immune cells, as well as NKP46+, cells. Both xenografts showed increased expression of genes biologically related to a humoral response, including monocyte and macrophage activation, natural killer cell burden, endothelial activation, complement activation, and T-cell development. Whole transcriptome digital spatial profiling showed that antibody-mediated injury was mainly located in the glomeruli of the xenografts, with significant enrichment of transcripts associated with monocytes, macrophages, neutrophils, and natural killer cells. This phenotype was not observed in controlled pig kidney autografts or in ischemia reperfusion models. Interpretation Despite favorable short-term outcomes and absence of hyperacute injuries, our findings suggest that antibody-mediated rejection in pig-to-human kidney xenografts might be occurring. Our results suggest specific therapeutic targets towards the humoral arm of rejection to improve xenotransplantation results. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Cluster randomized pragmatic clinical trial testing behavioral economic implementation strategies to improve tobacco treatment for patients with cancer who smoke. Purpose Few cancer centers systematically engage patients with evidence-based tobacco treatment despite its positive effect on quality of life and survival. Implementation strategies directed at patients, clinicians, or both may increase tobacco use treatment, TUT, within oncology. Methods We conducted a four-arm cluster randomized pragmatic trial across 11 clinical sites comparing the effect of strategies informed by behavioral economics on TUT engagement during oncology encounters with cancer patients. We delivered electronic health record, 
AHR-based nudges promoting TUT across four nudge conditions, patient-only, clinician-only, patient and clinician, or usual care. Nudges were designed to counteract cognitive biases that reduce TUT engagement. The primary outcome was TUT penetration, defined as the proportion of patients with documented TUT referral or a medication prescription in the EHR. Generalized estimating equations were used to estimate the parameters of a linear model. Results From June 2021 to July 2022, we randomly assigned 246 clinicians in 95 clusters, and collected TUT penetration data from their encounters with 2,146 eligible patients who smoke receiving oncologic care. Intent to treat, ITT, analysis showed that the clinician nudge led to a significant increase in TUT penetration versus usual care, 35.6% v 13.5%, or equals 3.64, 95% c, 2.52 to 5.24, p less than 0.0001. Completer-only analysis, N equals 1,795, showed similar impact, 37.7% clinician nudge v 13.5% usual care, or equals 3.77, 95% c, 2.73 to 5.19, p less than 0.0001. Clinician type affected TUT penetration, with physicians less likely to provide TUT than advanced practice providers, ITT or equals 0.67, 95% C, 0.51-0.88, P equals 0.004. Conclusion EHR nudges, informed by behavioral economics and aimed at oncology clinicians, appear to substantially increase TUT penetration. Adding patient nudges to the implementation strategy did not affect TUT penetration rate. Next article from Hepatology Predicting Liver-Related Events in NAFLD, a Predictive Model. Background and Aims Management of NAFLD involves non-invasive prediction of fibrosis, which is a surrogate for patient outcomes. We aim to develop and validate a model predictive of liver-related events, LREs, of decompensation and or HCC and compare its accuracy with fibrosis models. Approach and Results Patients with NAFLD from Australia and Spain who were followed for up to 28 years formed derivation, N equals 584, and validation, N equals 477, cohorts. Competing risk regression and information criteria were used for model development. Accuracy was compared with fibrosis models using time-dependent AUC analysis. During follow-up, LREs occurred in 52, 9%, and 11, 2.3%, patients in derivation and validation cohorts, respectively. Age, type 2 diabetes, albumin, bilirubin, platelet count, and international normalized ratio were independent predictors of LRE and were combined into a model, NAFLD Outcomes Score, NOS. The NOSE model calibrated well, calibration slope, 0.99, derivation, 0.98, validation, with excellent overall performance, integrated prior score, 0.07, derivation, and 0.01, validation. A cutoff greater than or equal to 1.3 identified subjects at a higher risk of LRE, sub-HR 24.6, P less than 0.001, 5-year cumulative incidence 38% versus 1.0%, respectively. The predictive accuracy at 5 and 10 years was excellent in both derivation, 
time-dependent AUC, 0.92 and 0.90, respectively, and validation cohorts, time-dependent AUC, 0.80 and 0.82, respectively. The nose was more accurate than the fibrosis 4 or NAFLD fibrosis score for predicting LREs at 5 and 10 years, p less than 0.001. Conclusions The NOSE model consists of readily available measures and has greater accuracy in predicting outcomes in patients with NAFL than existing fibrosis models. Next article from Clinical Infectious Diseases Incidence of hypertension and blood pressure changes in persons with human immunodeficiency virus at high risk for cardiovascular disease switching from boosted protease inhibitors to dolutacrevir. Background Integrase inhibitors have been recently linked to a higher risk for hypertension. In NEAT 022 randomized trial, virologically suppressed persons with human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, PWH, with high cardiovascular risk switched from protease inhibitors to dolutacrevir either immediately, DTGI, or after 48 weeks, DTGD. Methods Primary endpoint was incident hypertension at 48 weeks. Secondary endpoints were changes in systolic, SBP, and diastolic, DBP, blood pressure, adverse events and discontinuations associated with high blood pressure, and factors associated with incident hypertension. Results At baseline, 191, 46.4%, participants had hypertension and 24 persons without hypertension were receiving antihypertensive medications for other reasons. In the 197 PWH, N equals 98, DTGI arm, N equals 99, DTGD arm, without hypertension or antihypertensive agents at baseline, incidence rates per 100 person years were 40.3 and 36.3, DTGI and 34.7 and 52.0 DTGD at 48, P equals 0.5755 and 96, P equals 0.2347 weeks. SBP or DBP changes did not differ between arms. DBP mean, 95% confidence interval, significantly increased in both DTGI, plus 2.78 millimeters of mercury, 1.07 to 4.50, P equals 0.0016, and DTGD, plus 2.29 mm of mercury, 0.35 to 4.23, P equals 0.0211, arms in the first 48 weeks of exposure to dolutacrevir. 4, 3 under dolutacrevir, 1 under protease inhibitors, participants discontinued study drugs due to adverse events associated with high blood pressure. Classical factors, but not treatment arm, were independently associated with incident hypertension. Conclusions PWH at high risk for cardiovascular disease showed high rates of hypertension at baseline and after 96 weeks. Switching to dolutacrevir did not negatively impact on the incidence of hypertension or blood pressure changes relative to continuing protease inhibitors. Next article from Clinical Infectious Diseases. Incidence of hypertension and blood pressure changes in persons with human immunodeficiency virus at high risk for cardiovascular disease switching from boosted protease inhibitors to dolutacrevir. Background. 
Integrase inhibitors have been recently linked to a higher risk for hypertension. In NEAT 022 randomized trial, virologically suppressed persons with human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, PWH, with high cardiovascular risk switched from protease inhibitors to dolutegravir either immediately, DTGI, or after 48 weeks, DTGD. Methods Primary endpoint was incident hypertension at 48 weeks. Secondary endpoints were changes in systolic, SBP, and diastolic, DBP, blood pressure, adverse events and discontinuations associated with high blood pressure, and factors associated with incident hypertension. Results At baseline, 191, 46.4%, participants had hypertension and 24 persons without hypertension were receiving antihypertensive medications for other reasons. In the 197 PWH, N equals 98, DTGI arm, N equals 99, DTGD arm, without hypertension or antihypertensive agents at baseline, incidence rates per 100 person years were 40.3 and 36.3, DTGI and 34.7 and 52.0, DTGD at 48, P equals 0.5755, and 96, P equals 0.2347, weeks. SBP or DBP changes did not differ between arms. DBP mean, 95% confidence interval, significantly increased in both DTGI, plus 2.78 mm of mercury, 1.07 to 4.50, P equals 0.0016, and DTGD, plus 2.29 mm of mercury, 0.35 to 4.23, P equals 0.0211, arms in the first 48 weeks of exposure to dolutegravir. 4. 3 under dolutegravir, 1 under protease inhibitors, participants discontinued study drugs due to adverse events associated with high blood pressure. Classical factors, but not treatment arm, were independently associated with incident hypertension. Conclusions PWH at high risk for cardiovascular disease showed high rates of hypertension at baseline and after 96 weeks. Switching to dolutegravir did not negatively impact on the incidence of hypertension or blood pressure changes relative to continuing protease inhibitors. Next article from Journal of Infectious Diseases. Bronchiolitis, regardless of its etiology and severity, is associated with increased risk of asthma, a population-based study. An association exists between severe respiratory syncytial virus, RSV bronchiolitis, and a subsequent increased risk of recurrent wheezing, RW, and asthma. However, a causal relationship remains unproven. Using a retrospective population-based cohort study, 339-814 children, bronchiolitis during the first two years of life, regardless of etiology and severity, was associated with at least a threefold increased risk of RW slash asthma at two to four years and an increased prevalence of asthma at greater than or equal to five years of age. The risk was similar in children with mild bronchiolitis as in those with hospitalized RSV bronchiolitis and was higher in children with hospitalized non-RSV bronchiolitis. The rate of RW slash asthma was higher when bronchiolitis occurred after the first six months of life. Our results seem to support the hypothesis of a shared predisposition to bronchiolitis, irrespective of etiology, and RW slash asthma. However, 60% of hospitalized bronchiolitis cases in our setting are due to RSV, 
which should be paramount in decision-making on imminent RSV prevention strategies. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. Does the type of failure and the choice of the second biologic influence response and persistence on medication in rheumatoid arthritis? Background. The type of failure may predict response to a second biologic. We evaluated the response to a second tumor necrosis factor inhibitor, TV, or non-TV in patients failing their initial TV, either primarily or secondarily. Methods. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis who were biologic naive and had a clinical disease activity index, CDAI, greater than 10, who started their first V for greater than or equal to 3 months and then switched to a second biologic, were included in the study. Secondary failure was defined as two consecutive low CDA visits, and then switching to a second biologic while they had moderate-slash-severe CDA. Primary failure was defined if it did not meet the definition of secondary failure, or if they had at least one moderate-slash-severe CDA after three months on treatment. We used multivariable logistic regression comparing primary versus secondary failure for achievement of CDA in less than or equal to 10, primary outcome, and minimal clinically important differences, secondary outcome, at six months after switch. Results Of the 462 patients included, 64.3% and 35.7% stopped the first V because of a primary and secondary failure, respectively. Patients with primary failure had a more severe disease, C. De mean, 26.39 versus 21.61, P less than 0.001. The likelihood of achieving C. Day less than or equal to 10, odds ratio, 4.367, 95% confidence interval, 2.428 to 7.856, and minimal clinically important difference, odds ratio, 2.851, 95% confidence interval, 1.619 to 5.020, was significantly higher for secondary than primary failure regardless of choice of a second agent. Conclusion Patients with rheumatoid arthritis with secondary failure to a first be responded better to a second biologic agent, regardless of the choice of biologic. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology. The 2022 Euler-ACR points to consider at the early stages of diagnosis and management of suspected hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis-slash-macrophage activation syndrome. Objective. Hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, HLH, and macrophage activation syndrome, MAS, are life-threatening systemic hyperinflammatory syndromes that can develop in most inflammatory contexts. They can progress rapidly, and early identification and management are critical for preventing organ failure and mortality. This effort aimed to develop evidence-based and consensus-based points to consider to assist clinicians in optimizing decision-making in the early stages of diagnosis, treatment, and monitoring of HLH-MAS. Methods A multinational, multidisciplinary task force of physician experts, including adult and pediatric rheumatologists, hematologists-slash-oncologists, immunologists, infectious disease specialists, intensivists, allied healthcare professionals and patients-slash-parents, formulated relevant research questions and conducted a systematic literature review, SLR. 
Delphi methodology, informed by SLR results and questionnaires of experts, was used to generate statements aimed at assisting early decision-making and optimizing the initial care of patients with HLH-MAS. Results The task force developed six overarching statements and 24 specific points to consider relevant to early recognition of HLH-MAS, diagnostic approaches, initial management and monitoring of HLH-MAS. Major themes included the simultaneous need for prompt syndrome recognition, systematic evaluation of underlying contributors, early intervention targeting both hyperinflammation and likely contributors, careful monitoring for progression-slash-complications and expert multidisciplinary assistance. Conclusion These 2022 Euler-slash-American College of Rheumatology points to consider provide up-to-date guidance, based on the best available published data and expert opinion. They are meant to help guide the initial evaluation, management and monitoring of patients with HLH-MAS in order to halt disease progression and prevent life-threatening immunopathology. Next article from Circulation Improved cardiac function in post-dyschemic rats using an optimized cardiac reprogramming cocktail delivered in a single novel adeno-associated virus. Background Cardiac reprogramming is a technique to directly convert non-mycites into myocardial cells using genes or small molecules. This intervention provides functional benefit to the rodent heart when delivered at the time of myocardial infarction or activated transgenically up to four weeks after myocardial infarction. Yet, several hurdles have prevented the advancement of cardiac reprogramming for clinical use. Methods Through a combination of screening and rational design, we identified a cardiac reprogramming cocktail that can be encoded in a single adeno-associated virus. We also created a novel adeno-associated virus capsid that can transduce cardiac fibroblasts more efficiently than available parental serotypes by mutating post-translationally modified capsid residues. Because a constitutive promoter was needed to drive high expression of these cell fate altering reprogramming factors, we included binding sites to a cardiomyocyte restricted microRNA within the three untranslated region of the expression cassette that limits expression to non mycites. After optimizing this expression cassette to reprogram human cardiac fibroblasts into induced cardiomyocyte like cells in vitro, we also tested the ability of this capsid-slash-cassette combination to confer functional benefit in acute mouse myocardial infarction and chronic rat myocardial infarction models. Results We demonstrated sustained, dose-dependent improvement in cardiac function when treating a rat model two weeks after myocardial infarction, showing that cardiac reprogramming, when delivered in a single, clinically relevant adeno-associated virus vector, can support functional improvement in the post-remodeled heart. This benefit was not observed with GFP, green fluorescent protein, or a hepatocyte reprogramming cocktail and was achieved even in the presence of immunosuppression, supporting myocyte formation as the underlying mechanism. Conclusions Collectively, these results advance the application of cardiac reprogramming gene therapy as a viable therapeutic approach to treat chronic heart failure resulting from ischemic injury. Next article from ACC, Latest in Cardiology Benefits and Drawbacks of Vegetarian and Vegan Diets 
The following are key points to remember from a state-of-the-art review on the benefits and drawbacks of vegetarian and vegan diets. This review of plant-based diets provides an excellent reference for all who are providing nutrition advice and counseling, educating healthcare professionals, or who simply for personal reasons want to maximize their efforts to eat what might be a very healthy diet. The authors conducted an exhaustive search and included both basic and clinical research reports, epidemiologic studies, case control studies, and randomized controlled trials. Plant-based diets have become increasingly popular thanks to their purported health benefits espoused by healthcare professionals, well-known athletes, entertainers, and the media, and more recently for their positive environmental impact by reducing carbon emissions from farm-slash-ranch animals. There are different types of plant-based diets including vegan, 100% plant-based, lacto-ovo-vegetarian, plant-based except for dairy products and or eggs, and pesco-vegetarian or pescatarian, plant-based except for fish and seafood with or without eggs and dairy. All vegetarian diets exclude meat, for example, beef, pork, lamb, venison, chicken, and other fowl, and related meat products. In addition to epidemiologic studies, data from randomized clinical trials have confirmed a protective effect of vegetarian diets for the prevention of diabetes and reductions in weight, blood pressure, glycosylated hemoglobin, and low-density lipoprotein cholesterol. LDLC, but to date, no data are available for cardiovascular, CV, event rates and cognitive impairment, and there are very limited data for cancer. Importantly, not all plant-based foods are equally healthy. Unhealthy vegetarian diets are poor in specific nutrients, vitamin B12, iron, zinc, and calcium, and or rich in highly processed refined flours, hydrogenated oils, high fructose corn syrup, sucrose, artificial sweeteners, salt, and preservatives, each of which have been shown to increase morbidity and mortality. There are no data from mechanistic studies to help understand whether the advantages of healthy, minimally processed vegetarian diets represent an all-or-nothing phenomenon. Could it be that consuming primarily plant-based diets containing small quantities of animal products, for example, pesco-vegetarian or Mediterranean diets, has beneficial, detrimental or neutral effects on cardiometabolic health outcomes? Among the potential mechanisms of vegan and well-balanced vegetarian diets for reducing the risk of coronary heart disease, CHD, cancer and dementia include lipid-lowering, glucose-lowering and insulin-sensitizing, antioxidative stress, anti-inflammatory, antihypertensive, and production of intestinal microbial metabolites influencing metabolic immune health. Particularly important is the marked reduction in saturated fat. Next article from ACC, Latest in Cardiology Benefits and Drawbacks of Vegetarian and Vegan Diets Among the potential mechanisms of vegan and well-balanced vegetarian diets for reducing the risk of coronary heart disease, CHD, cancer and dementia include lipid-lowering, glucose-lowering and insulin-sensitizing, antioxidative stress, anti-inflammatory, antihypertensive, and production of intestinal microbial metabolites influencing metabolic immune health. Particularly important is the marked reduction in saturated fat. Replacing saturated fat with refined carbohydrates increases the risk of CHD substantially but replacing saturated fat with vegetable polyunsaturated fatty acid, particularly seeds and nuts, decreases CHD by 30%, which is similar to statins. 
Foods rich in dietary fiber and with low glycemic index can lower insulin production and increase the levels of short-chain fatty acids produced by fiber fermentation, which have both been shown to inhibit cholesterol synthesis. Joint analysis of five prospective studies including 76,172 individuals has shown a lower CHD mortality in vegetarians than in omnivores, 34% less in lacto-ovo-vegetarians and pesco-vegetarians and 26% lower in vegans. A meta-analysis of seven epidemiological studies, 124,706 participants, found an 18% lower cancer incidence in vegetarians than omnivores. The high fiber and water content and lower energy density of vegetables, legumes and whole grains may in part explain this effect. Consumption of diets rich in fiber induces gastric distension, delays gastric emptying, and prevents large fluctuations in postprandial blood glucose. Similarly, short-chain fatty acids produced by the intestinal microbial metabolism of resistant starch and oligosaccharides of minimally refined plant foods markedly reduce blood glucose and body weight in randomized clinical trials. Among the benefits of avoiding excessive calories is avoidance of central adiposity associated with insulin resistance and inflammatory and hormonal factors implicated in pathogenesis of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, escade, and cancer including breast, endometrial, prostate, and colon. Interestingly, the vegetarian diet of low glycemic index load is associated with lower intake of protein intake than by omnivores who consume about 90 to 100 grams of protein of which 70% is animal. The latter is associated with increased prevalence and risk of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes mellitus, T2DM. Diabetes increases by 20-40% to 40% for every 10 grams of protein in excess of 64 grams per day, a finding that was found in animal but not plant protein. Not mentioned in the article is that while the keto diet can lower the hemoglobin A1c along with weight loss, after a year, it is associated with increased risk for diabetes. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Visit to visit hemoglobin A1c variation and long-term risk of major adverse limb events in patients with type 2 diabetes. Context. Glycemic variation had been demonstrated to be associated with several complications of diabetes. Objective. Investigation of the association between visit to visit hemoglobin A1c, A1c, variation and the long-term risk of major adverse limb events, males. Methods. Retrospective database study. Average real variability was used to represent glycemic variations with all the H1C measurements during the four following years after the initial diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Participants were followed from the beginning of the fifth year until death or the end of the follow-up. The association between HIPAA-1C variations and males was evaluated after adjusting for mean HIPAA-1C and baseline characteristics. Included were 56,872 patients at the referral center with a first diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, no lower extremity arterial disease, and at least one HIPAA-1C measurement in each of the four following years were identified from a multi-center database. The main outcome measure was incidence of a male, which was defined as the composite of revascularization, foot ulcers, and lower limb amputations. Results. The average number of A1C measurements was 12.6. The mean follow-up time was 6.1 years. The cumulative incidence of males was 9.25 per 1,000 person years. 
Visit to visit HUBA1C variations were significantly associated with males and lower limb amputation after multivariate adjustment. People in the highest quartile of variations had increased risks for males, HR 1.25, 95% C 1.10 to 1.41, and lower limb amputation, HR 3.05, 95% C 1.97 to 4.74. Conclusion HBA1C variation was independently associated with the long-term risk of males and lower limb amputations in patients with type 2 diabetes. Bone marrow adiposity and fragility fractures in postmenopausal women, the Edemos case control study. Context Non-invasive assessment of proton density fat fraction, PDFF, by magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, may improve the prediction of fractures. Objective This work aimed to determine if an association exists between PDFF and fractures. Methods A case control study was conducted at Lille University Hospital, Lille, France, with two groups of postmenopausal women, one with recent osteoporotic fractures, and the other with no fractures. Lumbar spine and proximal femur, femoral head, neck and diaphysis, PDFF were determined using chemical shift-based water fat separation MRI, WFI and dual energy X-ray absorptiometry scans of the lumbar spine and hip. Our primary objective was to determine the relationship between lumbar spine PDFF and osteoporotic fractures in postmenopausal women. Analysis of covariance was used to compare PDFF measurements between patient cases, overall and according to the type of fracture, and controls, after adjusting for age, Charlson Comorbidity Index, CCI and BMD. Results In 199 participants, controls and equals 99, were significantly younger, P less than 0.001, and had significantly higher BMD, P less than 0.001 for all sites, than patient cases, and equals 100. A total of 52 women with clinical vertebral fractures and 48 with non-vertebral fractures were included. When PDFFs in patient cases and controls were compared, after adjustment on age, CCI, and BMD, no statistically significant differences between the groups were found at the lumbar spine or proximal femur. When PDFFs in participants with clinical vertebral fractures, and equals 52, and controls were compared, Femoral neck PDFF and femoral diaphysis PDFF were detected to be lower in participants with clinical vertebral fractures than in controls, adjusted mean, SE 79.3%, 1.2 versus 83.0%, 0.8, P equals 0.020, and 77.7%, 1.4, versus 81.6%, 0.9, P equals 0.029, respectively. Conclusion no difference in lumbar spine PDFF was found between those with osteoporotic fractures and controls. However, imaging-based proximal femur PDFF may discriminate between postmenopausal women with and without clinical vertebral fractures, independently of age, CCI, and BMD. Next article from Neurology Association between socioeconomic factors, race, and use of a specialty memory clinic. Background and objectives The capacity of specialty memory clinics in the United States is very limited. 
If lower socioeconomic status or minoritized racial group is associated with reduced use of memory clinics, this could exacerbate health care disparities, especially if more effective treatments of Alzheimer's disease become available. We aim to understand how use of a memory clinic is associated with neighborhood-level measures of socioeconomic factors and the intersectionality of race. Methods we conducted an observational cross-sectional study using electronic health record data to compare the neighborhood advantage of patients seen at the Washington University Memory Diagnostic Center with a catchment area using a geographical information system. Furthermore, we compared the severity of dementia at the initial visit between patients who self-identified as black or white. We used a multinomial logistic regression model to assess the clinical dementia rating at the initial visit and t-test to compare neighborhood characteristics, including area deprivation index, with those of the catchment area. Results a total of 4,824 patients seen at the memory clinic between 2008 and 2018 were included in this study, mean age 72.7, SD 11.0, years, 2,712, 56%, female, 543, 11%, black. Most of the memory clinic patients lived in more advantaged neighborhoods within the overall catchment area. The percentage of patients self-identifying as black, 11%, was lower than the average percentage of black individuals by census tract in the catchment area, 16%, p less than 0.001. Black patients lived in less advantaged neighborhoods, and black patients were more likely than white patients to have moderate or severe dementia at their initial visit, odds ratio 1.59, 95% c 1.11 to 2.25. Discussion This study demonstrates that patients living in less affluent neighborhoods were less likely to be seen in one large memory clinic. Black patients were underrepresented in the clinic, and black patients had more severe dementia at their initial visit. These findings suggest that patients with a lower socioeconomic status and who identify as black are less likely to be seen in memory clinics, which are likely to be a major point of access for any new Alzheimer's disease treatments that may become available. Next article from CHEST. Effect of hypertonic saline on lung function as add-on treatment in people with cystic fibrosis receiving Dornay's alpha. Background. Introduction of novel therapies for cystic fibrosis, CF, raises the question of whether traditional treatments can be withdrawn. Nebulized hypertonic saline, HS, potentially could be discontinued in patients receiving Dornay's alpha, DA. Research question. In the era before modulators, did people with CF who are F508-DEL homozygous, CFF508-DEL, and who received DA and HS have better preserved lung function than those treated with DA only? Study Design and Methods Retrospective Analysis of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation Patient Registry Data, 2006-2014 Among 13,406 CFF508-DEL with data for at least two consecutive years, 1,241 CFF508-DEL had spirometry results and were treated with DA for 1-5 to five years without DA or HS during the preceding, baseline, year. Absolute FEV 1% predicted change while receiving DA and HS, relative to treatment with DA only, was the main outcome. A marginal structural model was applied to assess the effect of 1-5 to five years of HS treatment while controlling for time-dependent confounding. Results of 1,241 CFF508-DEL, 619 patients, 
median baseline age, 14.6 years, interquartile range, 6 to 53 years, received DA only in 622 patients, median baseline age, 14.55 years, interquartile range, 6 to 48.1 years, were treated with DA and HS for 1 to 5 years. After one year, Patients receiving DA and HS showed FEV 1% predicted that averaged 6.60% lower than that in patients treated with DA only, 95% C, minus 8.54% to minus 4.66%, P less than 0.001. Lower lung function in the former relative to the latter persisted throughout follow-up, highlighting confounding by indication. After accounting for baseline age, sex, race, DA use duration, baseline in previous years FEV 1% predicted, and time-varying clinical characteristics, patients treated with DA and HS for 1-5 to five years were similar to those treated with DA only regarding FEV 1% predicted, year 1, mean FEV 1% predicted change, plus 0.53%, 95% C, minus 0.66% to plus 1.71%, P equals 0.38, year 5, mean FEV 1% predicted change, minus 1.82%, 95% C, minus 4.01% to plus 0.36%, P equals 0.10. Interpretation In the era before modulators, CFF508 DEL showed no significant difference in lung function when nebulized HS was added to DA for 1-5 to five years. Non-invasive oxygenation strategies in adult patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Background. Several recently published randomized controlled trials have evaluated various non-invasive oxygenation strategies for the treatment of acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Research question. Which available non-invasive oxygen strategies are effective for acute hypoxic respiratory failure? Study design and methods. A systematic review of Medline, Embase, Cochrane Central, Sinal, Web of Science, MedERxiv, and ResearchSquare was conducted from inception to October 1, 2022. A random effects frequentist network meta-analysis was performed, and the results are presented using absolute risk difference per 1,000 patients. The grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation framework was used to rate the certainty of the evidence. Mortality, invasive mechanical ventilation, duration of hospitalization and ICU stay, ventilator-free days, and level of comfort are reported. Results. 36 trials, 7,046 patients, were included. It was found that helmet CPAP probably reduces mortality compared with standard oxygen therapy, SOT, 231 fewer deaths per 1,000, 95% C, 126 to 273 fewer moderate certainty. A high-flow nasal cannula, HFNC, probably reduces the need for invasive mechanical ventilation, 103.5 fewer events per 1,000, 95% C, 40.5 to 157.5 fewer, moderate certainty. All non-invasive oxygenation strategies may reduce the duration of hospitalization as compared with SOT, low certainty. Helmet B-level ventilation, 4.84 days fewer, 95% C, 2.33 to 7.36 days fewer, and helmet CPAP, 1.74 days fewer, 95% C, 4.49 fewer 1.01 more, 
may reduce the duration of ICU stay as compared with SOT, both low certainty. SOT may be more comfortable than face mask non-invasive ventilation and no different in comfort compared with an HFNC, both low certainty. Interpretation A helmet interface for non-invasive ventilation probably reduces mortality and the risk of mechanical ventilation, as well as the duration of hospital and ICU stay. An HFNC probably reduces the risk of invasive mechanical ventilation and may be as comfortable as SOT. Further research is necessary to understand the role of these interfaces in acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Observation, aspiration, or tube thoracostomy for primary spontaneous pneumothorax. Background Primary spontaneous pneumothorax, PSP, has several commonly used management strategies, observation, aspiration, and chest tube placement. Economic modeling of pooled data comparing techniques has not been performed. Research question Based on studies from the past 20 years, which approach to management of PSP delivers the highest utility? Study design and methods A systematic review of PSP management strategies, observation, aspiration, or chest tube placement, included in the Medline and Embase databases from January 1, 2000, through April 10, 2020, was conducted. Text screening, bias assessment, and data extraction were performed by two authors, G, E and C. A, P. Inclusion and exclusion criteria were defined a priori. The primary outcome was PSP resolution after the initial intervention. Secondary outcomes were PSP recurrence, length of stay, rate of surgical management, and complications. The meta-analysis compared treatment arms, dichotomous outcomes were reported as relative risk, RRs, and continuous outcomes were reported as mean differences. A cost-utility analysis within the Canadian healthcare system context with deterministic and probabilistic sensitivity analyses was performed. Results 5,179 articles were identified, after screening, 22 articles were included. Most trials showed a high risk of bias, but randomized trials showed a lower risk. Compared with chest tube placement, observation, mean difference, 5.17, 95% C, 3.75 to 6.59, P less than 0.01, I2 equals 62%, and aspiration, mean difference, 2.72, 95% C, 2.39 to 3.04, P less than 0.01, I2 equals 0%, showed a shorter length of stay. Compared with observation, chest tube placement, RR, 0.81, 95% C, 0.71 to 0.91, P less than 0.01, I2 equals 62%, and aspiration, RR, 0.73, 95% C, 0.61 to 0.88, P less than 0.01, I2 equals 67%, showed higher resolution without additional intervention. Two-year recurrence rates did not differ between management strategies. Observation showed the best utility, 0.82, and lowest cost, observation was the optimal strategy in 98.2% of Monte Carlo simulations. Interpretation Observation is the dominant choice compared with aspiration and chest tube placement for PSP. It should be considered as the first-line therapy in appropriately selected patients.
Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. A polygenic risk score for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and interstitial lung abnormalities. Rationale, in addition to rare genetic variants in the MUC5B locus, common genetic variants contribute to idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, IPF, risk. The predictive power of common variants outside the MUC5B locus for IPF and interstitial lung abnormalities, ILIS, is unknown. Objectives, we tested the predictive value of IPF polygenic risk scores, PRSs, with and without the MUC5B region on IPF, ELA, and ELA progression. Methods, we developed PRSs that included, PRS M5B, and excluded, PRS no M5B, the MUC5B region, 500 kilobit window around RS35705950T, using an IPF genome-wide association study. We assess PRS associations with area under the receiver operating characteristic curve, AUC, metrics for IPF, ELA, and ELA progression. Measurements and main results, we included 14,650 participants, 1,970 IPF, 1,068 ELA from six multi-ancestry population-based and case control cohorts. In cases excluded from genome-wide association study, the PRS M5B, odds ratio, or, per SD of the score, 3.1, P equals 7.1 times 10 minus 95, and PRS no M5B, or per SD, 2.8, P equals 2.5 times 10 minus 87, were associated with IPF. Participants in the top PRS no M5B quintal had sevenfold odds for IPF compared with those in the first quintal. A clinical model predicted IPF, AUC, 0.61, RS35705950T and PRS no M5B demonstrated higher AUCs, 0.73-0.7, respectively, and adding both genetic predictors to a clinical model yielded the highest performance, AUC, 0.81. The PRS no M5B was associated with ELA, or, 1.25, and ELA progression, or, 1.16, in European ancestry participants. Conclusions, a common genetic variant risk score complements the MUC5B variant to identify individuals at high risk of interstitial lung abnormalities and pulmonary fibrosis. Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. Early Risk Stratification for Natural Disease Course in Fabry Patients Using Plasma Globotrasylsphingosine Levels Background Fabry disease is a very heterogeneous X-linked lysosomal storage disease. Disease manifestations in the kidneys, heart, and brain vary greatly, even between patients of the same sex and with the same disease classification, classical or non-classical. A biomarker with a strong association with the development of disease manifestations is needed to determine the need for Fabry-specific treatment and appropriate frequency of follow-up because clinical manifestations of the disorder may take decennia to develop. Methods We investigated the levels of plasma lyso-GB3 levels over time and its association with disease manifestations and disease course in 237 untreated patients with Fabry disease, median age 42 years, 38% male using linear mixed-effect models. Results Lyso-GB3 levels are stable over time in plasma of untreated patients with Fabry disease. 
higher levels of LISO-GB3 were associated with steeper decline in EGFR, P equals 0.05, and a faster increase in albuminuria, measured as the urinary albumin to creatinine ratio, P less than 0.001, left ventricular mass, measured on echocardiography, P less than 0.001, left atrial volume index, P equals 0.003, and Fasica's score, P equals 0.003. In addition, regardless of age, higher LISO-GB3 levels were associated with higher relative wall thickness, P less than 0.001, and unfavorable functional markers on echocardiography, including septal mitral annular early diastolic velocity, E, P less than 0.001, and the ratio of early transmitral velocity, E to E, E slash E, P equals 0.001. Conclusions In an individual patient with Fabry disease, the plasma lyso-GB3 level reached a specific level in early childhood which, in the absence of Fabry-specific treatment, remained stable throughout life. The level of lyso-GB3 in untreated patients was associated with nearly all Fabry-specific disease manifestations, regardless of the sex of the patient. Next article is from Kidney International. Patient Preferences for the Management of Gastrointestinal Symptoms in Kidney Transplantation, a Discrete Choice Experiment. Introduction Gastrointestinal, GI, symptoms in kidney transplant are common and debilitating. We aim to ascertain patients' preferences for GI symptom management options to help future interventions align with treatment priorities. Methods a discrete choice experiment was conducted with kidney transplant recipients in three Australian nephrology units. A multinomial logit model was used to quantify the preferences and trade offs between five characteristics cost, formulation, symptom burden, dietary changes, and medication quantities. Results 70 patients participated, mean age plus or minus SD, 47 plus or minus 15 years, 56% female. 57% had GI symptoms. Patients preferred interventions that will achieve complete resolution of GI symptoms compared to no improvement, odds ratio, 95% confidence interval, 15.3, 1.80, 129.50, were delivered as a tablet rather than a sachet, 1.6, 1.27, 2.08, .08, retained their current diet compared to eliminating food groups, 6.0, 2.19, 16.27, reduced medication burden, 1.4, 1.06, 1.79, and had lower costs, 0 0.98, 0.96, 1.00. Participants would be willing to pay odd dollar 142.20, $83.90, $200.40, monthly to achieve complete resolution of GI symptoms or odd dollar 100.90, $9.60, $192.10, to have moderate improvement in symptoms. Conclusions Interventions that are highly effective in relieving all GI symptoms without the need for substantive dietary changes, and in tablet form, are most preferred by kidney transplant recipients. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.